welcome to another podcast by BNP Paribas Wealth Management. This week, we're going to discuss obesity, examine the causes, and discover what the pharmaceutical industry is doing to address this global epidemic. My name is Charlotte Descapoisson. People come in different shapes and sizes, but no one was born obese. Figures provided by the World Health Organization are staggering. In 2016, more than 1.9 billion adults were overweight, including 600 million defined as obese, and 41 million children under the age of five were overweight or obese. Most of the world's population live in countries where overweight and obesity conditions kill more people than being underweight. The paradox is that it hasn't been easier for people to do exercise and keep trim. Walking and running costs nothing. There are countless free online exercises classes available. And now for a small cost, you can subscribe to a fitness app and take an exercise class in the comfort of your own home at any time of the day or night. A while ago, people associated obesity with overeating and abundance. It was a problem only in high income countries. But today, overweight and obesity figures and now dramatically on the rise in low and middle income countries, particularly in urban settings. Moreover, the large majority of overweight or obese children live in developing countries where the rate of increase has been more than 30% higher than that of developed countries. So what are the main causes and consequences of obesity and what can be done to treat the problem? Today, I'm joined by Edmund Sheng, Chief Investment Officer of BNP Paribas Wealth Management. Hello, Edmund. Good to see you. Hello, Charlotte. What do you consider to be the causes of overweight and obesity today? Well, if we look at the causes of obesity, Charlotte, we can see that there's been a clearly massive growth in the rate of obesity around the world, particularly in developed economies. There are several reasons for this. The growth of the sedentary lifestyle and office work is one. Secondly, I would think the lack of exercise is a second one. Thirdly, the growth of use of cars. So we have more access to personal transport than ever before. So again, we're, for instance, just walking less. And of course, finally, there is the growth in penetration of ultra-processed foods in our diet. So ultra-processed foods would be things like ready meals that you can either buy from the supermarket or even takeaway food that you can buy from restaurants. And the rising consumption of this ultra-processed food, which generally have higher levels of fat, salt and sugar, are clearly also a contributory factor to the growth of the rate of people being overweight and in particular of obesity. So I think it's a combination of these factors together. Okay, so let's focus more on food and drink now. For many people in the world, there is a large choice in supermarkets and farmers markets. The other side of the coin is that some cultures are geared up to giving people more food than they need. When I went to the US on holiday a few years ago, I was surprised by the sheer quantities of food served up at restaurants and the buy one, get one free offers at fast food chains and supermarkets. So why, Edmund, do you think we're eating too much and not eating enough healthy food? And when and why do you think the main shift occurred? Well, I think if we look at why and when the shift occurred, I think, again, the growth of ultra processed food is something that we've seen over the last, let's say, 50 years. And that's really therefore happened since the 1960s, I would say. Now, if we look at the, the causes and what this has meant for diets, I think what this has meant for diets is that firstly, we do simply consume too many calories. And this is quite clear that if we look over decades, the number of calories consumed by the average adult 
in the developed world, in a country like the US, the UK, or in continental Europe, has simply gone up. We do eat more calories per person per day today than we did in decades past. So that's the first point. Second point, if you look at the breakdown, again, coming back to these ultra-processed foods, we are actually eating more fats, and in particular, sugar. Now, in the past, and if you look at diets and you listen to what we've been told by medical organizations and doctors, we've always been told that we should cut out fat or reduce fat if we want to lose weight. But in fact, that's not necessarily true. And the real culprit has been shown in more recent studies to be sugar, in fact, so refined sugar in particular. And so this sort of changes a little bit the aspect because maybe we've been targeting the wrong thing. Rather than targeting the, the amount of fat in our diets, we should target two other aspects of our diets. Firstly, sugars, which again are more present in ultra processed foods than elsewhere. And secondly, protein. Because in fact, unless you're bodybuilding, you don't need to eat that much protein. And in fact, the majority of people eat too much protein per day in the developed world in particular. And this is also due to the fact that production of protein, particularly animal protein, such as, for instance, chicken or pork, has simply become over the last few decades cheaper, cheaper relative to other forms of food, cheaper relative to the general rate of inflation. And it's quite interesting to note that we have an abundance of food in the developed world at the same time as the proportion of our like, household budgets that we spend on food and drink has actually reduced quite significantly over decades to a relatively low level of around 15% of our total household spending today. In, in, you know, in decades past, it would have been much, much higher. And again, much of this is due to the relative cheapness, particularly of ultra-processed foods. If you were to buy fresh fruits today, we have fresh fruit and vegetables, fresh meat and fish, it's actually quite expensive. And you'll find that the ultra-processed foods, things like, for instance, white bread or ready meals, can actually often be cheaper on an all-in basis than the equivalent meals made with fresh fruit and vegetables. And of course, require more effort in terms of time and time for preparation. And so there is that level of convenience we have to admit that we've all become lazier as, as, a, as a species. And in the developed economies, we are spending less time preparing our food and uh, really accessing these ready meals or ready prepared ingredients, uh, processed ingredients, a lot more than perhaps we did in the past. And obesity often leads to other serious health conditions, doesn't it? Well, that's the problem. Being overweight by itself is not necessarily such a problem. I mean, in fact, we have to remember that over one's lifetime, one's metabolic rate does slow down. So when you're a young adult, so in your 20s, or when you're growing even uh, in your teens and in puberty, you're clearly able to consume a lot more calories because firstly, you're growing, but secondly, you have a very high metabolic rate. So that means you're burning a lot more calories per day as a, as a teenager or as a young adult into your 20s. However, of course, once you leave education and you, you enter the world of work, Particularly if you have an office job, you tend to adopt a much more sedentary lifestyle than you would as a younger person. And it's there that the slowing of metabolic rates starts and then continues as one gets into the 40s and your 50s and your 60s. Your metabolic rate will, other things being equal, continue to slow and therefore you'll burn calories a little bit slower. The problem is, of course, if you're eating the same number of calories per day, but you're burning them more slowly through your lifetime, you will start to accumulate weight. And this is where we see the transition from merely being 
let's say modestly overweight, and I, I'm part of that category, I am definitely overweight, not slim, but there is a transition from that, which can still be healthy, to morbidly obese, which is when you start to see the risk of type 2 diabetes rising dramatically. And we have seen the incidence of type 2 diabetes in the developed world rise massively over the last couple of decades in particular. And I think that is due to this combination of poorer diet and more sedentary lifestyle. And I would throw in a third element, which is poorer sleep patterns, because we also know that if we sleep poorly and wake up feeling tired, we are liable to eat more as a result of that. So there is a, a link between poor sleep and subsequent overeating as well. So when you take these three elements together, sedentary lifestyle, slowing of metabolic rate over your lifetime, poor a mix of diet with more ultra processed foods in there, and then poor sleep, all of these combine. And that's why type 2 diabetes has been on the rise substantially in terms of the rate in the, in the population. And yes, of course, if we think about the two major causes of death in the Western world today, they are firstly heart disease and secondly cancers. And type 2 diabetes and being obese are unfortunately linked to much higher incidence, much higher risk, both of heart disease generally, but also of various types of cancers as well. So absolutely, being heavily overweight leads to type 2 diabetes, which can then lead to other health complications and higher risks to your health as a result. Yeah, and you mentioned lack of exercise as being a factor of obesity. And research has shown that the more organised sport that people do when they're children at school or in clubs, the more sport they tend to do when they are adults, because regular exercise becomes part of their daily or weekly routine. So what do you think government schools and health authorities and companies can do to encourage people to do more exercise? Yeah, that's a tricky one. Because you have to, while of course public health campaigns are a typically good idea, I'm also of the opinion that one should take personal responsibility. So I would agree that putting in place, particularly in schools for children and for teenagers, clubs and program sport activities are very important to, to cultivate the habit. The problem is that even with that in place, a lot of people then drop sport as they start work and leave education. So I think there is an element of personal responsibility as well. It is, yes, of course, we want to show people that sport and exercise is enjoyable, but it's not just about sport, Charlotte. After all, many forms of exercise are not necessarily sport related. For instance, walking, it's not necessarily a sport per se, but it's still very good for you. And we know that if you walk, I mean, okay, not the mythical 10,000 steps per day, you probably need to walk a little bit more. But if you can walk over an hour a day, which actually is not that difficult if you put your mind to it, then that has a significant impact, particularly if you walk at a good pace, not too slowly, but a decent pace, because it's not just how much you walk, how many steps you walk, but the speed at which you walk. So the faster you walk, the better it is for you as well. So it's a combination of doing the steps, but doing the steps at a decent pace. Now, again, doing that may not constitute sport per se, but it still has a, it's still exercise. It still contributes to burning of calories and a much and a higher metabolic rate. So all of this is important. And again, things like gardening can be very useful activities for this as well, because not only do you burn calories, but again, for your mental health, it has been shown that being in nature is extremely beneficial, particularly for offsetting depression, for instance. It is actually shown to be very beneficial to lessening the rate of depression. So there are a lot of things tied up here for your general health. But clearly, 
all of these things should allow the burning of more calories, the raising metabolic rate. And it is a question of consistency. And I think we have lost that to a greater to a great extent in the developed world. And people have lost the habit of regular exercise, whether it be sport or, or through other activities. Exactly. And in many countries, employers make their staff visit a company doctor to give them a clean bill of health. And a colleague of mine whose waistline needs a bit of attention was enrolled in a series of sessions with a nutritionist to help him slim down. After about six weeks of strict dieting, missing out on after work drinks and trying to fit in exercise, he managed to lose 10 kilos. But to continue to do this over the medium or long term is a real challenge for some people. And for older housebound or disabled people, the task of shedding weight, or in some cases, a lot of weight, is inconceivable. The pharmaceutical industry is cashing in on this massive problem and making fat profits. Edmund, can you tell us about the so-called wonder drugs on the market and whether they're working? So clearly there are a number of drugs on the market today that have been uh, I think popularized over the last few years. The most obvious one, which originally was developed for treatment of type 2 diabetes, but has now been widened for indications for weight loss and weight control, is so-called Wegavi or Ozempic, which is the drug from Novo Nordisk, the Danish company. As I said, this has been now widened for weight loss control, particularly in the States, which is the largest pharmaceutical market in the world by far. And we've seen quite good success with this, with the usage of this medication to reduce weight of overweight patients. Now, the issue is that in many countries, this drug is not available, is not reimbursed, I should say, by either governments or necessarily private health insurance, but it's something that you may have to purchase privately via private subscription. And I believe the cost in the US, to give some idea, is around $300 a month or under $4,000 a year. And this is administered by injection at the moment for weight loss control. So you take regular injections and this helps reduce your weight effectively by making food travel more slowly through your stomach and through your intestinal system, which makes you basically feel full for longer. Uh, so in, in terms of effect, it's not that different, let's say, from a gastric bypass, where you effectively put a big rubber band around part of your stomach to artificially reduce the size of your stomach, which is uh, a surgical procedure that is used on chronically overweight people to allow them to reduce their weight, particularly if they're at you know severe risk of type 2 diabetes or heart disease. So this is a non-surgical way of effectively trying to replicate that same effect to keep you feeling full for longer and therefore you eat less, fewer calories, therefore leads to weight loss. That's the way it works. I should say that Novo Nordisk is not the only company with a drug of this type. You have drugs with similar actions being about to be launched by Eli Lilly in the States, for instance. And this could be also very attractive because this will likely be available in pill form as opposed to injection. So again, this could be also equally very successful for Eli Lilly as well as Novo Nordisk going forwards. But let's be clear, in terms of indications, the, the treatment market is, of course, colossal. If you look at the number of obese people or people with type 2, two diabetes in the developed world, not to mention the developing world, the numbers are just in the billions. So you can imagine that, you know, just to give you some idea, in the UK alone or in the US, 25 to 30% of people are judged to be obese in terms of body weight and um, body mass indicator, not just overweight, but obese. So it's nearly a third of the population in countries like the UK and the US already. So you can imagine 
the, the potential treatment populations in these countries is simply colossal. So logically, investors can make money from obesity. And so what is the best way to do this? Well, clearly, investment in the pharmaceutical industry is one way, although I will say that Nova Nordisk has already performed extremely well. This is not a new story. Uh, people know about the Nova Nordisk, not only for insulin, which is what its previous blockbuster uh, drug was for treatment of insulin, but now you have Wegovy and Ozempic, which has seen uh, sales really grow extremely rapidly. As I said as well, for Eli Lilly, this will also likely be a similar case once the once the pill format medication is also approved for distribution, for instance, in the States and then in Europe as well, subsequently. But these are unlikely to be the only companies. And I think there are other companies with similar treatments in the works. And this is what you typically find. And as I said, this is such a massive potential indication such a, with such a massive potential treatment population that I think all pharmaceutical companies will be trying to, in quotes, jump on the bandwagon to produce similar drugs with similar actions that hopefully can be launched on the market sooner rather than later. And with that, we should see really quite a revolution in terms of weight loss, in terms of reversal of type 2 diabetes in the Western world in particular. And, you know, that really should help reduce in particular the incidences of heart disease and cancers, which, as I said before, are the two major killers in today's world. Ed Mishing, thank you very much for your time today. And to our audience out there listening to this podcast, please like, share and subscribe to our weekly podcast by searching for BNP Paribas Wealth Management on any provider of your choice. Goodbye. Goodbye.